Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I am not nervous uh, normally when I do interviews or at least uh, really wanting to be on my toes. But I want to be on my toes today for you, uh, you, the audience that has followed me in education and the interviews that I've uh, conducted over the years. This is a real treat. We're going to be spending time with Dr. Heidi Hayes Jacobs. I first met, we were just talking off air. It could be 15 years, um, but, you know, at this point, (laughs) what's one more year, right? So it's between 10 and 15 years. I remember watching uh, Heidi's TED Talk, one of my favorite of all time. Uh, I just think it's such a classic for anybody that's giving a TED Talk that wants to be inspired and think about the role education plays in their lives, that of their children. Um, it's just a fantastic talk that I think has really stood the test of time. But let me let me embarrass Heidi just a little bit here with some background. Uh, so many of you in education know her, and she's been recognized. And she, what I love about Heidi is she's been in education at almost every level. Uh, she just has such relevance now, and she's such a leading voice as we look towards a what could be complicated future in education. Uh, she's internationally recognized for her seminal work in contemporary curriculum design, vertical mapping, and modernizing responsive school environments. She's the founder and president of the Curriculum Designers Group, providing professional services to schools and organizations internationally to upgrade curriculum and support teaching strategies to meet the needs of 21st century learners. Uh, she models on curriculum mapping and curriculum design. Uh, those models have been featured in 13 books and counting and are the basis for software solutions used throughout the world. She has collaborated with the European Council of International Schools, the College Board, ADK International, Canadian Schools in China, New Zealand's Learning Network, the Kennedy Center of Peace Corps, Carnegie Hall, Australia's EdTech, and the United Nations Council on Teaching and New York State Higher Education Commission. And I'm sure the list could go on and on. So many of you know her books, brand new book out with her dear friend, Alison Zamuda. It's streamlining the curriculum using the storyboard approach to framing, to frame, excuse me, compelling learning journeys through ASCD. Heidi, um, so nice to spend some time with you. Uh, when I think of those in our profession, in the sector, in the market of education, there are a select few that I think, wow, we just need to get the temp, we need to take the temperature. It's kind of where are we? And I think we are at a crossroads in a lot of ways. And I think we need to inspire. I think we need to find sort of new pathways to understand students and the way in which they learn. And I love the the, the premise of the new book. So let's start with that. Talk a little bit about not just the book, but the impetus for the book in streamlining curriculum, because I'm so glad that this is an approach that you and Allison have taken, because as a parent, I have been wondering, as we kick off the new school year, are we approaching curriculum in a different way that meets not just my kids, but students across the world in a much more meaningful and hopefully progressive manner? Thank And warm and actually intriguing introduction, because I think You've teed up our conversation to focus on what matters most right now. And I also like how you use the word impetus. Um, Allison and I began playing with some ideas about what we thought was a, a real problem, and that was the streamlining problem in the fall of 2019. And when COVID hit, it was it exacerbated the issue. It it became absolutely apparent more than ever that there is a bloated curriculum, a dated curriculum, 
This, this is a problem that's been around for a while. And anyone listening knows that, that it's been pile on curriculum year after year. You can't keep adding new knowledge, and there is new knowledge that needs to be added without taking things away. That hasn't been happening. And so the pressures on teachers seemed insurmountable. And we were looking at a procedure or a way of working where schools and districts, whether international, public, private, public, whatever it is, whatever country, could begin to make realistic decisions about what matters most prior to the pandemic. And this is something I've studied a lot in my work on mapping over decades now. And I think we were onto some interesting ideas. And then the pandemic came and then we suddenly had um, what I would just call serial epiphanies. Um, it became absolutely clear that the audience for the curriculum was the wrong audience. And I, for one, have participated in that problem a big part of my career. That curriculum needs to be rewritten and absolutely geared towards the recipient, towards the learner. I'm very serious here that the amount of hours that go into parsing through and taking apart documents, figuring out taxonomies, um, even the wonderful work with standards, which is great. It isn't curriculum friendly. There are a litany of long lists of proficiencies that aren't curriculum friendly, certainly aren't student friendly. The amount of time teachers have to do by wedding that with content and filling out forms and all of the documentation takes so much energy and time away from students that it's no wonder we've been looking at teacher shortages and those have only increased after and through and because of the pandemic. So during the pandemic, there was a lot of um, schools that um, obviously, obviously had lockdowns and students were home. So suddenly all the communication with kids was through Zoom or virtual conferencing and a lot of material sent home. And, and what happened is we began to get, I began to get it, so did Allison, contacted by district saying, our parents are flipping out. They don't know how to make sense of these lesson plans. And I'm going, of course, they weren't written for them. <laughs> and also there's so much that there was a tendency like, oh, we'll just give them more. And I really felt for teachers during that time. It was just incredibly difficult for them. And so we began to think about maybe it's not only the cutting back, it's not only the streamlining, which I do think needs to happen, but we needed a refreshed, more natural form to take, a format shift. And in our research, we began to look at this concept of storyboarding, which is something, actually the term originated with the Disney studios back in uh, the 20s and 30s. And the concept was really very clear. It, it created the narrative and it was the backbone and the backdrop for um, creating animated feature films. The concept of storyboarding has moved to other fields, absolutely. What we realized was if you took the curriculum, it wasn't only um, that there was too much, but it was also, it was too packed. And what we realized is the way it was written wasn't a storyboard model at all. It was like unit silos. Now, any educator 
who's listening will know what I mean by a unit. Now, people in the general public don't necessarily, and I understand that. But when we think of units, you can think of a unit of measurement, but a, a unit of curriculum is usually like a two to eight week concentration. It's a subset of a course. So you could have an English course that has six units across the year. The first one might be on the tragedies of Shakespeare or something like that. In elementary school, it could be in something like math, and you start with addition and subtraction and so forth, place value. And what happened is we began to really study it, and we realized that people might write really strong units, but there was absolutely no narrative across. And one of the reasons students didn't understand or retain is it wasn't designed, first of all, for them in their language. Secondly, the concentration on connections, through lines, storylines across the year was absent. And that finally, you know, a lot of folks will say, well, today's learners are more visually oriented. Guess what we all are? <laughs> the brain is very well, the brain research and on, on neural pathways and the like, if, if we see iconography, it immediately alerts us to the action that's necessary. Signage, think about it right now. And we got also that a concept could be reinforced visually and that so many learners need that extra hand out to them to help guide them and see it across the year. That the storyboard, one of our favorite things is it's pictorial. So over the course of the last two and a half years, almost every weekday morning around five o'clock, because I'm an early riser as is Allison, we would talk about these ideas. We began researching them. We did test drives. We worked with a number of districts that allowed us to try out the idea of storyboarding, storyboarding in conjunction also with the streamlining part. And we began to get onto something. And we began to look also at cleaner, clearer prompts. And finally, the huge recognition that if the language was student-friendly, if the, the focus of the units, um, the focus of the story, so to speak, the narrative across the year was crystal clear, families could understand it, kids could be participants with teachers, ultimately students can create storyboards of the year areas of interest they may want to pursue or inquiry they want to deal with, and that these could be highly responsive. We also saw that it was a natural place, we can talk more about that in a minute, and a better place to deal with the placement and integration of standards. I mean, all of the aspirations we have, we saw could be easier, easier to translate. So we um, began working on this book, and we began using the idea of the narrative. And when I was uh, working um, as a um, teaching at, at Columbia University at Teachers College, and I was there for many years and taught courses in curriculum design, where it was a glorious period of time for me. But when I would teach my courses, and my former students will remember this, I always said that if you take a curriculum course with me, it's a creative writing course, and that we're going to study curriculum as genre that there's different types, so like issue-based or problem-based or so what, so forth. And Allison really liked that idea and we decided to take that further too. So in conjunction with this idea of 
curriculum is narrative, it changes the role of teacher. And we use many of the tools and strategies that you would if you were writing a short story or you were writing an information piece or a political piece or something you were working on. You think about, Rod, you think about the genre you're going to use. Is it going to be a brief? Is it going to be a column? You know, and you think about your audience. Well, that's a bit that way. Nobody thinks about the audience. And you also have to think about what will be compelling for them. And uh, they're they're on this journey. And so in in answering your question this first round and um, thinking about how to respond, I would say what's been exciting, and, and I will use the word electrifying. I mean it. Oh my gosh, people like this. Teachers get excited about it. It gives them tools and an approach. They reinvest in what they're teaching, you know, in a sense. But what, what's really exciting about it is um, it, it's, a, it's a collaborative venture. And my take now is if a student at the end of Algebra 1 doesn't know the story of Algebra 1 through the year, you've lost them. You've lost them. And, and what's more is the mapper in me also is saying it's a vertical journey that that we want students to be able to connect the work they do across disciplines, of course, and over time. And it's applicable in in any setting. It can it, you know it can be traditional subjects, but it can also be interdisciplinary. It can be phenomena based. It can be based on current emergent questions and issues. But um, that I would say would is is sort of the impetus and a little bit of the narrative yeah. <laughs> about how this emerged came to be. Yeah, you know, one thing that struck there's a lot that struck me in what you just said, Heidi. But you made you made a comment that I don't want to um, roll over, and because I think it's incredibly important when we when we think about ourselves in the story. And so you're 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 sort of preaching to the choir here with me and. and what I'm seeing even in the corporate space and in the higher ed space and the power of story, uh, Harvard Business Reviews had a bunch of stories now, pieces, I should say, about the power of story within corporate environments, cultural change, lining up with strategy. So oh, this is all mapping, to use your language in that manner. But you you talked about participating in the problem. And, and why I want to sort of um, hone in on that is that that to me speaks to one's value proposition, the, the value that they think that they bring to an endeavor, an environment. And the reticence people have oftentimes, I'm guilty as charged uh, in different facets of my life, where if we acknowledge what you did, which was that you participated in the problem, well, then potentially we run the risk of this sort of, you know, backslide on our career or in what we thought we were contributing in the spirit of, of scholarship and, and being well-intentioned and these sorts of things. But I think it's so important just as, as humans that when we think about our role, our impact, we talk about footprints and that, yes, you were, you participated in the problem, but you're willing to speak to that. And I think that that sort of zooming in on that is incredibly powerful for educators out there because I don't think we've set them up for success in a lot of different environments. I think that we are, we're pigeon, pigeonholing them. I think that the the pandemic, it was, a, it was a flashpoint of what we had not been doing, which was to understand the relationship that an educator has with a group of people, i.e. parents or caregivers of the students in their classrooms so that they could be advocates in the student life cycle and communicating out sort of expectations, needs, wants, all of that. 
And so I wonder if you could speak to that conversation, because when I speak to educators off the record, I hear a lot of sort of this audible questioning of their role and looking for a point of definition or a way in which they can participate that they can feel good about and understand the value. I mean, we've the cultural wars are what feel like endless right now. And the classroom seems to be a battleground to some degree. And I worry as a parent and a community member that we're going to lose really talented people or maybe not even sort of get the best of them because we're not having these conversations that allows them the freedom to say, I've been a part of the solution and or the problem or the confusion, and I'm here to stay. That's a long, <laughs> uh, you know, premise there, but I would love just your thoughts on that because I don't, that to me could be one of the most important things that somebody would learn in a course that you teach or anybody in the space, the ability to communicate that piece. I think it's important for students to hear that from their educators to life is fluid. I guess is what I'm saying. And I would love your comment yeah, on that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about a very favorite um, quotation. I think it was Martin Buber. I'm not 100% sure. So if somebody does the research, they can tell me. That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite notions. And that is, if you are going to commit to be a lifelong teacher, an educator, above all, be a public learner. So I think my response to you is it's really important to um, claim and address learning and not be guilt-stricken by it. I mean, it, I don't even think it's like mistakes. It's like scientists. We're scientists in a certain way. We're artists. So there's an artistry to teaching, but there's a science. It's like, yes. Well, couldn't, we, couldn't one argue, Heidi, that it's okay for a scientist to, I guess, fail through the scientific method because that leads them to hopefully the an outcome of of desirability whereas in education we are we've been we've been sort of um indoctrinated that that you as the educator are supposed to have the answer <laughs> that there is a a direct sort of set of steps for me to get from point a to point b and yet the gen zers i mean you, you're seeing the change in um in college to career readiness, the way universities are trying to adapt, there's no straight line or I think prescription to go from point A to point B. And that's assuming that students want to go from point A to point B. They might want to zigzag. <laughs> I think most learning is a zigzag. I don't know. I think straight lines really don't exist very much. It's sort of an illusion. And also part of it is the richness in, in the process. If I understand what you're asking, and I want to be sure that I am, I don't think it's, I think it's part of being a, a teacher is learning, continuing to learn. There's, it, it, how can it, learning doesn't stop. It's like, you never finish curriculum, right? There's always going to be new things to add to it. In fact, the word curriculum might shed light on what you're asking. The root word of curriculum is Latin, and it means a course to run in small steps, but the course itself can change with your direction. I I think you touch, I think that's an important point. So no, I don't have difficulty with that. I think the key is to not just go, oh, I should have done it differently, is to figure out what to do differently. I mean, I think part of it is the inquiry into, okay, if we haven't been communicating effectively with students, how can we? And that I think is important, is not to go powerless, but to, 
to begin to cultivate um, different solutions, different possibilities. It's the creative and artistic part of our work too, is to take those risks. Um, but I don't, I, I, um, I think most teachers know this. I really do. I, I think that it's because we're in, we, you know, our field in medicine and deal with human beings. I mean, we deal with human condition. We deal with kids who are changeable in a day, you know, even as we're speaking, there are classrooms all over the world filled with teachers and kids. And those, those teachers know very, very well that what a difference the day makes. <laughs> they know that personalities interact. They're dealing with students who in the course of the year grow inches and their minds grow. It's always a case of change. Change is the constant. It's the only thing you can count on. It's impermanent. It's always growing. So to me, I think what it is is to be responsive, to be adept at being agile in learning, um, being clear about you know, a lot of what we do have confidence about on developing and cultivating the skill sets and competencies kids need. And there's a, a lot of work that's gone into the teaching of, of number systems or uh, gaining uh, language capacity, but there's always more that can keep learning. So that I think is, is, is very real and palpable. What I think you've touched on though, in the latter part of your commentary, as I was listening, is a really important point. And in the last book I did uh, prior to this one was um, Bold Moves for Schools with Marie Alcock that dealt with the modernization of school environments, which I think are really closed. I think we have, we need to look at learning spaces, which have been changing dramatically in architecture, as well as revisiting very old style confining schedules, the grouping of kids and adults. A lot of those conditions need to change so that we have more expansive opportunities for learning that's more relevant and current. So that means the job description of teachers needs to change too. So when you talk about roles, the role that I might have had 150 years ago was a compliance model, standing in front of the room, giving directions. I'm, I'm the dispenser. The students are the recipients. That's still out there, man. That's alive and well in a lot of places. But the roles that I think are more compelling and attractive to the new generation of teachers require us to be um, coaches for innovation, to be uh, mentors on digital citizenship, to be um, helpful in as global ambassadors, helping students connect with their own locality and places around the world that if I want my students to be equipped for now and in the future, then I have to have a different job description too. That means I need more tools, more flexibility in curricular choices. Um, How do you have to change the personality type or the, when we think about recruiting the next generation of educator, does it require a different set of skills that by default might mean that we have a different, we have an infusion of maybe a different personality type than we'd had traditionally, or is that even the right question to be asking? Oh, gosh, that is a real, um, I think you want to answer that question. But I think that because I think you <laughs> I do. And I think that's fine. And I think you should. Um, but what you mean, I don't really think of personality types. But I, I guess what I, the way, uh, let me request. Attributes. So, let me, let me, hold attributes, on. yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that it does require um, 
more, I think, an increase in a willingness to, um, it's almost to some extent skill-based, but, and I think many of our, I even say, think our current teachers, most of our older teachers are still very, they've been dealing with um, the internet for 20, 25 years anyway. I mean, it isn't like when everyone goes, oh, it's technology. I think there's some of that, but I, I think it's more um, uh, responsiveness to um, a willingness to be responsive and make use of and, and deal with more directly the arenas of where education occurs, whether it's social media or the creation of media or it's media criticism or it's um, more connectivity and seeing opportunities that go beyond the confines of the four walls. I think it's, it's to some extent a willingness, an attribute to be willing and also more collaborative um, to be learners in that regard would be helpful. Um, I don't know about personality types, because I think the other thing we can't miss is warmth and ability to make human connection. Um, boy, our kids need that more than ever, like you alluded to. Um, pandemic's taken a real hit on mental health and emotional issues everywhere. And so I think we need people who are adept at that as well. But anyway, you raised it, so I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I, it makes me wonder if, if look, whether I recently was guest lecturing at Vanderbilt's business school with a bunch of future uh, accountants and focus on valuation and these different things, and I'm seeing a change even in, in sort of those students that matriculate <laughs> through the process in that I think of it this way. Maybe I was growing up and I had, uh, you know, three or four interests that were compelling to me as a young person because they I felt like I fit within the world that I was seeing. And if we start to expand that lens or we change that lens or the filter that we look at when we think about education, well, maybe it opens the door for people who previously would have gone into a different sector because they see a different in, a different opportunity. I, I go back to my my days going to, you know, all the conferences and ISTE, and I would meet someone in ed tech and someone that was thinking about ed tech. They had a technology, they were innovative, and they would say off the record, you know, I really would like to make a difference and support education through ed tech, but I see too many, uh, you know, uh, too much bureaucracy and a, and a runway that's just not long enough for me to build my own company. And so I'm going to go into healthcare or something else. And I would always think to myself, oh, we just missed something there. You know, we missed an opportunity. And so it just makes me think about maybe it's a bigger opportunity. Used to, I think we would communicate that there were just a couple of pathways in education, whether it was K-12 or higher ed. And we haven't really thought about different models that might integrate somebody in who started a business for 10 years, worked a business for 10 years, now is in education, takes an off-ramp for a few, brings back experiences. That could open up the window of opportunity. And the beneficiary, to your earlier point, would be the recipient, the student in that manner. And I think that that might have some impact or trickle down to colleges of education, the way in which they market even just the opportunity. Um, I think you're, I, think you're I, mean, I absolutely agree with you on that. Now I follow I think a little more clearly where you're headed. Um, the model I described, I, I think there's three, and Marie and I wrote about this, three pedagogies that govern these decisions. And the antiquated one is the one I note. And that's that we shouldn't even be looking at. It's It doesn't matter what the student does. If I cover what I'm doing, their job is just to take marching orders from me. And if they don't get it, it's their fault. More classical work, which most schools run on now, has some... Um, real value and merit. Teachers are coaches, they guide, they direct. But I don't think it leverages what I think contemporary pedagogy dictates, which is a lot closer to what you're describing now, which is 
we need a learner who is agile and facile and more self-navigating. And when we we should be saying, what is the career path you're on? This can be multiple careers. You just mentioned that. It's more, what is the skill set and the agility I will have to be innovative, to be able, sometimes I'll be in the future working strictly remotely. Sometimes I'll be on site. What, what are the possibilities? What are the ways my generation is going to deal and tackle with problems like climate change or the problems confronting young people that will be really in their lap so much into the future. And I think we need to have those opportunities. And that's why we wrote Bold Moves. I totally feel that the majority of schools really generally mean well, have great intentions, but they're suffering under models that and it almost starts to feel trite, but it's true that are over 120 years old and you don't attract to the field the kind of energy you're alluding to in prospective teachers if they don't, if they feel like they're going to be shunted back in the box. So absolutely. And it may be that necessity will be the mother of inventing new schools because we're losing teachers we're losing kids in many ways, and there are occasional labs and experiments and interesting programs and cool kind of buildings. And I think it will take something radical. And when I say radical, I mean it in the mathematical root sense. The root word of radical does mean root. It doesn't mean wild. It doesn't mean crazy. It means there's some root issues that need to shift and change. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that because I think people think of schools in a very familiar way, almost a romantic nostalgia about what school was. And school hasn't been that great for a lot of people. And so the key here is to pay attention, I think, to places that have done a pretty good job of making many of these shifts, places like Finland, <laughs> really. And having spent some time there, I. I'm going to say it was systemic and it's ideal, but they do a lot of things really well. And, you know, the conditions and, and uh, that way of working will make a lot of a difference. So I think in America, and I don't, I mean, I know you have an international audience, so I always sort of look at where I'm standing, but we really have 50 countries in public education because each state is so different, but it may be, it will be a state that gets lit and incentivizes this or, Maybe in the independent school world, it'll be a cluster of schools, because I do see pockets of this. Um, and, and it may be that um, there's another type of trend that occurs. Maybe it'll be combinations of remote learning in conjunction with on-site learning. I expect there's going to have to be some systemic shifts, um, because otherwise we're just, we're just not going to be able to um, produce the type of students who can really fare well. And we we isolate teachers way too much. So yes, I, I, I hope that sort of goes along. And maybe it does go along with what you're saying, but I think it, I hope to support the notion that we need to really rethink the roles of teachers, but the possibilities for action that occur. You know, one other thing that I think happened, or that maybe is an observation through COVID, was that we I think we thought we had, I don't know, I guess a fair working relationship from school to community, uh, classroom to parent, these sorts of things. And 
that feels like a bit of a grenade was sort of dropped in, into that. And it was like, wait a minute, maybe my relationship with my child's teacher has been just sort of very surface level. And I haven't been engaged. It hasn't been activated in a way that could be productive so that we see growth throughout the school year, these sorts of things. And so I'm, I'm wondering this, this goes to your point about the clusters and these different components, because I think that there's an opportunity if sort of done at a comprehensive multi-layered level is to put together sort of these coalitions where it's not just your, you know, your school board or your K-12, whatever it is. We're so isolated is I'd rather think it's like, if I asked you, Heidi, I said, if you're going to put a dinner party together of the, of the stakeholders, and I know that's such an overused term, but just key people or roles to really sort of have conversations about what are we trying to accomplish? Because I think in a vacuum, a lot of different areas are doing some pretty interesting things. But are we actually tying these things together, right? You know, are we are we looking at the way in which entrepreneurial studies are integrated sort of full-time into K-12, not as an add-on? When you were speaking earlier about sort of just layer after layer, it made me think of like wallpaper in an old house. And you go, my goodness, there are seven layers of wallpaper. And the stories between each layer, you just kind of get, you, you know, you go off and muse on that. But this concept, we just keep adding and adding, and we're not understanding that we've got to peel away and understand the sort of the fit. But I'm just wondering if you were to put a dinner party together, what types of people that you think would be compelling to actually have a conversation that's generative, that understands we have to think of me like the environment or the school building, to your point, you know, this archaic, you know, uh, cinder block sort of approach to education that is not inspiring to you or me, let alone a 10 year old. Um, how would you think about those kinds of conversations? So in essence, more people know about your book, Heidi, and, and Allison and the work that you've done, because I think it shouldn't just be in a vacuum. Well, I, I, um, I think that maybe what you're asking, and if I'm wrong, tell me, <laughs> I think what you're asking about is how do you germinate, um, and begin to create a situation where a an education setting, an educative setting, can begin to look hard at the choices that are made for now and into the future, and who should those participants be? You know, it's really easy to start to think we should do this and we should do K through 12, but the reality is schools are small places. And it is truly, and I go back to what I, I'm saying, it is truly where you stand, literally. In America, to answer your question, public education is driven a lot by real estate. That's it why you right. have one state that has a full array of different schools. Or you can be in a big urban school district, and it's where that neighborhood is and whether the families contribute to the PTA fund to do fundraisers. The, the conditions of a school are, are such, because here's the deal, it's an intimate environment. And even in a big school, you go into a class and, uh, and because of the design of the school, it's one group and sometimes a really big group. And if it's a big group and in the conditions in that school environment with the monies they have to spend, they're sticking with the old model, which is coverage, then the student has a kind of drive-by experience sometimes. Whereas in a, in a school five miles away, it might be such that the 
environment or the community or the value of the community is such that we would in, be, in fact be more inclined to bring an array of voices, to go out and seek voices. Clearly, I think at the forefront should be students. We listen to them. They're the ones, this is who it's for. Um, families have an opportunity to be highly participatory in what they value and what they see, as, as well as key groups of teachers and administrators. But even in those conditions, whether, whether you're in a large district and you're going to subdivide and begin to do some planning work, I have participated over the years on multiple strategic committees and communities who are doing very much what you're describing. But here's the dilemma. We only know what we know. <laughs> That's another thing alone. I mean, ignorance isn't bliss. And so what happens is people come together and they have a really cool idea. We want to have a new building, but they only know. They haven't looked at the buildings and the types of learning spaces and the ways. And I'm not just talking big open. I'm talking really interesting design. I have worked with and I've actually written about some of the most interesting designs worldwide about how learning spaces can change, the furniture, everything else. Before you go out, remember my point a few minutes ago? We have to agree to be learners first, to slow down the process. Your idea about having more case studies, there are places that do case studies. I was up in Toronto and one of the requirements and some of their business courses and economics courses were kids did year-long case studies. And I've seen that occur. But it's spotty. It isn't, it isn't, it's because a lot of, of the others, other personnel don't know about. It. So if if you're going to like say we want a career path model, take your time to study what's going on, find out about possibility. So whoever comes to the table, ironically, I would say, slow down before you take action. Do your RD. Go out and you know, research means search again, research. So research again and again and cultivate innovation and possibilities. I think we, because schools are intimate, we tend to be enclosed in the decision-making. And so the portals haven't opened. We haven't let in more possibilities. So whoever is at the table, and obviously you want a full community, you also want voices at the table you haven't thought about. So part of your job is to go, what is there things we don't know? Who can we talk to to find out what we don't know? Because the schools you build, you'll live with for 25, 30 years. And so the idea is to learn more and, and, to, um, and to consider what are the possibilities of schooling. And also, I think, finally, I would just say this. Most, <laughs> most of the time, when I've worked with groups working on innovation, and I, I really have enjoyed that work over the years, you know, the root word of innovate comes from Nova, which means to give birth. And what you're looking at is something fresh and, and you want to develop it. But, but I would say that um, over the years, the majority of these places really want to, to do a, a great job. They really, they really want to, um, cultivate and and create something new, but often what happens is there's a start and then it drops. and And the hard thing is sustaining those those efforts. So I think the idea is are maybe bold moves, but 
incremental steps that are realistic. And generally speaking, people think about the curriculum ideas, but they don't think about those. There are four conditions. It's like physics. So I would finish with this thought. And we wrote about this in Boulders because I could see it, absolutely see it. You can, you can have an interesting career path model, or you could say, we're going to do some really interesting things with our elementary and make it more interdisciplinary, or whatever you want to do. But there's four conditions that are like the structural nest in which this sits. And one is the learning space. You, you, if you are in a confined cellular model, you know, where there are separate rooms, kids are in rows, you're not going to, you're already tied your hands. The second is the use of schedule. I think this is the biggest nemesis is people teach to time. If I have a 40 minute block, then I'm going to do 40 minute type stuff. So it's, it's, that's one of the big things you'll see in, in schools in other countries and in our own that have made it such headway. And I'm not just talking about a block. I'm talking about a really different way of looking at the way we use time. We should say what type of time would really best support the type of learning we want. But we don't. We teach who the time we have. The next one is the way we group kids, which is just, I think, awful. Honestly, no other word for it. It's so habituated. Like, we do it by grade level as opposed to where where kids are at. And the majority of places I see having more success are where we have some flexibility on grouping kids on what they need. Also, what you'll see is what's called redshirting, where kids get held back in kindergarten. So they'll be further ahead in first grade. You know, you see how people manipulating that. So there's the short-term schedule and then long-term and, and the way we group kids. And then the last is the grouping of uh, faculty, of professionals that we silo departments. We, we, don't, we don't have to use teachers by their talents. You know, it, some teachers are really great lecturers. Nothing wrong with they're really good lecturers. Some are better at lab work or something, you know. We're, we often miss the opportunity. So going back to one of your very earliest questions, I think teaching would be infinitely more appealing as a field if we could develop and draw from the range of your skills as opposed to your certification. And um, in business, because I work with a lot of businesses, I still do, I do, and software platforms, different groups. And I have over the years, as you know, with different uh, organizations and groups that way. People draw on people's talent. They really do. They don't just pigeonhole you. If that if somebody's got a flair for something, boy, that manager says, let's go with that. We don't do that. So to me, those conditions have everything to do with the aspirational um, force and power of, oh, we want our kids to have these types of experiences. Those conditions make a difference. All right, I'm going to put a wrapper on our conversation, but I want it's going to be a bigger topic, but one that is just exploding onto the scene. I know you've talked a little bit about it, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you just to provide comment on the role that AI is going to play from the perspective of both the teacher and the student, because I, I'll share with you that um, some in another experience I had recently, graduate students were bemoaning AI and sort of the fear that they had that their sector that they were entering could be negatively impacted, which could change the trajectory of their uh, their their sort of career pursuits, almost as if an asteroid would knock them off course. 
And so I'm wondering, what's the frame that we should approach AI with an education so that one, we're real with students, uh, with ourselves, our professional development and the role that we think it might have. And again, we'll, we're never going to know. It's, an, it's, it's a very fluid process. But I don't think we can just have our head in the sand and say, oh, that's just, you know, that's this is the advent of the calculator or this is, you know, TV coming in to replace radio that we have to think about it. And maybe a, a more comprehensive level to understand the implications and the way in which it might change or alter our teaching methods, you know, the way in which we digest information and then apply that to the paths that we're going to take in our future. Sure. Um, it's interesting you asked this. Uh, Mike Fisher, who is a, a brilliant writer on digital learning, Mike and I wrote an article for educational leadership that just came out this summer called Prompt Liter Literacy, a key for AI-based learning. And so my take on this um, is, and, and Mike and I, is that it's here. AI, you know, chat GPT is here. And and I think some of the tools, I think some of the visual tools uh, like Dolly and some of the others are, they need a lot of work. They're not, I don't think they're gonna be utilized that much until they're more sophisticated, but there's no question it's here. And I have worked with some schools and districts on the question of what should our policy be? Uh, to me, I think as Mike and I wrote about, it's going to be prompts. In other words, the, the teaching point is, is not to say to students, I mean, you can say it if you like, don't use it for this and don't use it for that. It's really, what is it that you give us the prompt to clarify what it is you're writing? And there's two possibilities here, um, or part, pardon me, two outcomes. One is that the student actually has to draw from what they've learned before, and it can really underscore it. So if I give a problem for a student, or they are asked, for example, to create a response. Um, let's say they've read, um, they've read, we're reading in literature, we're reading the theme of the American dream. And I'm having them read poems by Langston Hughes, I'm having them read Gatsby. And I want them to create a response, but they need to use, they need to think carefully about the style that they're going to reference. And what we may want to say is reference, you need to use the same language style as Fitzgerald and, and Hughes in those portions. And you, you have to set up a prompt that will call attention to those in the writing. You need to be sure that you're clear about your audience. You need to think through the prompt. What prompt would you use in terms of examples that you want to use. And so you might even be the one who feeds those examples from the text to support your claim. And, um, and you also may want to think about an emphasis stylistically on the voice you're using. And it can be your voice. And so there, there, that is going to make a difference when you go through and afterward, you're going to have to rewrite some of it to reflect your voice. But the key here is it can be an opportunity to utilize concepts that are taught about communication, writing, and literacy, or pardon me, literature in different formats, whether it's informational or narrative, and you get to employ those. And we think that that's, that's really strong. We actually had a model we included in the article, and 
um, that we think really gets people to look at each situation. What are the attributes? Who's the audience? And style points and can, in fact, actually improve the understanding of those concepts with the, the learner's input. I think the other thing is to not negate the, the, the validity and value of in real time writing. And that that needs to be part of the process. But I'm I'm also very inclined towards having, you know, I wrote some books on literacy and, and um, new media and so forth a few years ago. One of the things I think is very important is speech, is that we don't talk about that so much. And the key is in language competency, the four the four capacities of language, reading, writing, speaking, listening are absolutely intertwined. I write better if I listen better. After we speak, if, he, if you and I went back and wrote a summary, you'd be able to, because we talk back and forth about our ideas, our writing would be better than if I did a summary before I saw you what I want to talk about. The, the four go together. So the one thing I don't think is being talked about enough with AI, number one are these prompts. I think the prompts are really important and teachable. But two is using tools to have students hear themselves literally hear their own voice. Um, and there's so many good transcription tools that what would be interesting is for me to describe what I'm saying in my real voice, see how that comes up, look at what comes out in the chat GPT and see what's missing. What, how do I talk? What is, what is it that makes uniquely mine if I'm a 15 year old in a social studies class and I'm taking a stand on civil rights or something. So um, I think we're just beginning to get there, but I think it can be an enhancement ultimately. I really do. Um, obvious questions about plagiarism and cheating and all that are on the table. And I think those are very fair and reasonable questions, important ones, but it's here. So it's how do we, how do we come up with those notions? I'll close with this, Heidi, more of a personal question. What I am inspired by uh, in our conversation today, and it doesn't surprise me at all, is that I love that with all your success, you could very easily, and I think uh, you could fall into the trap that so many have, which is you, you're you sort of stuck in what you've, uh, <laughs> in the flag that you've put down in your career, and this is where you're, you're going to maintain that sort of piece of real estate, and you're never going to really venture out maybe and continue to explore. But there's something about your DNA, your makeup, that feels very childlike, and I mean that as a as a, a sincere compliment, which is that you're still curious with every sort of corner that you you turn down in a way that you're not sure of the outcome. Uh, it may not be a good outcome, or it may make you sort of double back, but you're in constant motion, but with a pace like this this curious this pace of curiosity. What what how do we how do we understand that? I think that's something to to celebrate and and hopefully we you know there are more and more people that think like that. Uh, I think it's a wonderful attribute that you bring to the conversation, and I'm just curious if you've reflected on that just in your professional career. It's really a nice way to end this conversation. That was dear of you, and um, yes, I've had I do get people who. That you keep, oh, I've heard words like reinventing yourself or there's something new. Um, I don't, I don't analyze that. I really don't. I think I'm I'm living it and live my life. I don't sit and go, how can I do this? I 
I will tell you though, that I am a real believer in honoring teachers. I am a teacher. I am a learner. I try to be, but I have, um, two people I think of who gave me wonderful advice and some things people give you advice, but some things just stick, you know, one of them was when I was in my mid twenties and I had just moved to New York. I was working at my doctorate at Columbia and she was a wonderful mentor. And the last time I saw her it was a long time ago, she said something I've never forgotten. And she said, in your career and in your life, always go for the chlorophyll. And I thought, I think I got it, but then I really started to get it. In other words, go for the places that are fresh and green and new and start to learn from it. Try to go there, see how you can be part of that garden. But the chlorophyll is life and it's where things are alive. And I think there's truth in that. And so I find myself drawn to people who have that. I find, and that's why I love children. They, they're, that's what they are, man. You know, they're little leaves, man. And I, at any age, but also those qualities in other adults. Um, I think that's, um, that, that is a, has been a really important one. And then the other is a colleague I've been good friends with for, Oh, decades, and that's Ben Akalik, who we actually dedicated this book to her. She told me early on in our when our early friendship began, and it was started through work, but she was really like, I sometimes would get sort of interested in something over here, kind of something sort of shiny, or I'd kind of, you know, I'm I am a very curious person and I, I I am that way, but she always said, Heidi, just trust your North Star. And it's used a lot, but I I believe that that when I've been true to what fascinates, captivates, the word capture is in the word captivate, then the work continues to go. The the things I write about over the years, um, and I like writing, I do very much. And but you you can't force it, you know. So I think being drawn to what I find naturally captivating, fascinating, and to those sources that give light and are green. <laughs> um, those two things have helped me. So my response is find some really good teachers and make them your lifelong teachers and um, and follow follow your own North Star. You know, that I think is is um, is what's helped me, but thanks for asking. I appreciate that. You are a uh, an incredibly powerful voice um, in this space, and it's it's very limiting to say, just say this space. Um, it's been a real treat to to circle back with you. I'm excited for your book. Um, you can check out it. You can go to ASCD.org and check out Streamlining the Curriculum Using the Storyboard Approach to Frame Compelling Learning Journeys by Dr. Heidi Hayes Jacobs and Allison Zamuda. Um, and Heidi's, you can check her out, Curriculum 21, check out on LinkedIn. It, she's involved in social, but she is a voice that you should add to your, um, I think you're just 
your points of, of regularity when you're checking in on who's saying what, who's contributing scholarship um, and thought provoking, and I think advancing uh, language and, and concepts for education that impacts communities, not just here in the U.S., but across the world. Once again, we want to thank Dr. Heidi Hayes-Jacobs. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.